Uh, so, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and welcome to uh, the Saeed Business School. Um, thank you very much for all getting up so early on a Sunday morning. Probably even worse than a nine o'clock um, morning lecture on a Monday. Um, so, special welcome. My name is Tristram Wyatt. Uh, I'm a fellow of Kellogg College, um, which may not have been around when you were here. Um, it's one of the new colleges, uh, some 20 years old, and it specialises in looking after part-time uh, graduate students who are taking part-time masters and part-time DPhils, including some of the students uh, taking the executive MBA here at uh, Said. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, uh, stayed on to do a PhD, uh, all in animal behaviour, and then by a long route via Leeds, Cardiff and University of California, Berkeley, uh, working on pheromones, on insect pheromones in my own case, um, I eventually found myself and saw the light and came to Oxford. And I've been here for some 20 years. Um, but over those last few years, I've been moving away from doing experimental work on insects. Um, I would fly uh, beetles in a wind tunnel. And they take off like little um, whirly gigs and fly like little helicopters to the other end in search of the odour. What I've been working on over the last few years is on the evolution of pheromones. So why do we have this range of smells across the animal kingdom? And why do so many animals uh, use smell? And that led me to publish a book, I'm afraid, with Cambridge University Press, um, in paperback. Um, it's a textbook, but it was designed so that chemists could understand the biology and the biologists could understand the chemistry which actually means if you're an English graduate, you'll find no difficulty at all. <laughs> so, um, and I'll be doing a signing afterwards uh, in the foyer. But basically what I describe in the book is how pheromones have evolved and in a way why it was inevitable that we'd have pheromones as soon as we had an olfactory system. As soon as we had a sense of smell designed the way it is, we would get pheromones evolving. So my first question um, is how many people here have read Perfume? Ah, now I've not been brave enough to see the film because I'm hugely passionate about the book, but would you recommend the film? Yeah? Okay, so I should take the courage in my hands and see what they've done to Grunewy, the main character. Ah, oh, right. Well, those of you who know the story, it's, um, it starts off pleasant in parts, but it actually ends up, uh, you, the um, subtitle is uh, The History of a Murderer. Um, but anyway, what I loved about the book, and I look forward to seeing in the film, is the way that Patrick Suskind creates an amazing imaginary world where smells are everything. And he creates an amazing character who has an extraordinary sense of smell. So as he's walking along the street, he can follow somebody just by their smell. But he has no smell himself, so the illusion is that he slips through the crowd without anybody else noticing him. Now, that is um, something very imaginary, because every other kind of animal leaves an odour trail. So what I ought to start with um, is what a pheromone is. And it's a relatively new word. Uh, it was coined by two Germans in 1959 uh, in a paper that's been something of a landmark uh, in nature. And it's been quoted hundreds of times since then. And one of the things I'm hoping to do next year is write a piece celebrating the 50th anniversary. They constructed the word 
um, from ferrin to transfer, to transmit, and hormone uh, to excite. Um, and the idea was by analogy with hormones, which is sending a message around your body in the blood, pheromones would transmit a message between animals of the same species, but across the air or across the water between them. There was some discussion at the time because um, this is apparently very bad Greek. Um, and somebody wrote in the following month saying, really, it ought to be, there ought to be another R. And strictly speaking, it shouldn't be ferrin. But the word stuck because it rolls off the tongue. And it's actually stuck to such a, an extent. And I don't know if any of you did this um, before coming to the talk. If you put it into Google, you'll find... Um, that there are, so we put pheromone into Google and we come up with almost five million hits. And what you'll find though is most of them are like these sponsored links trying to sell you something. And all of these are other sponsored links trying to sell you something else. But it does appear in Wikipedia. Um, and one of the sources for Wikipedia turns out to be my book, which was nice. So pheromones are a very popular concept. They're a wonderful word and it's really caught the imagination. Um, I found this in a, an airline magazine, um, a pheromone to make you irresistible. There are two versions, one for males, one for females. But we'll come back to that at the end, because sadly, apart from giving self-confidence, there's nothing magical about these. Well, what do animals say with pheromones? Well, they're saying all sorts of things, as you know. They're saying, I'm here, a male moth, is following the uh, pheromone from a female moth and flying upwind, perhaps over anything up to a kilometre, to find her in the dark. The female is signalling that she's ready and that she has eggs, she's looking for a male for fertilisation. There are lots of communication signals by uh, honeybees in particular and ants, where if they're attacked, they send out a message, help, come and save me. There are others in fish where if one fish is bitten by a pike, it sends out a signal to other fish who swim away, uh, as it were, in fear to escape the predator. There are a whole load of things which perhaps shouldn't be called pheromones, which are about identity. But these are odour signatures. So when two ants meet each other or a dog is sniffing a lamppost, it's getting information about who else is around. And there are also some things about territories which is why the other dog left the mark on the lamppost in the first place, saying, this is my territory. And there were lots of other messages too, and we'll be covering some of those in the rest of the talk. Well, it's also 50 years next year that the first pheromone was identified. And up until that point, there was a lot of discussion about pheromones, but nobody could identify a chemical that was the signal and synthesize the chemical and show that that elicited all the right responses. And the first one was a heroic effort uh, by this Nobel laureate, a chemist, a German chemist, who chose the silk moth partly because he needed half a million moths to collect enough material with the chemistry of the day to identify it. And so you needed something you'd get a lot of, and silk moths were one of the animals you could grow uh, as it were, you could farm them. And it turned out to be this relatively simple uh, fatty acid, uh, this one here, and it was hugely influential.
because for the very first time, we had both a word and also a chemical that you could show elicited the responses. But in some ways, it actually did mislead a generation of pheromone biologists and chemists because they assumed initially that everything would be like the salt moth. So, for example, they thought that each species would have its own unique smell. They thought that it would be a molecule like this uh, short-chain fatty acid. It would be small and volatile. It would be caught on the wind. There was an assumption that mammals, who are big and complex, wouldn't have little molecules. They'd do something much more interesting. And there was a view initially that pheromones would be something long distance, that it would be all about the pheromones in the forest and the male moths flying up at a great distance. And there was a view initially that it would be mostly about behaviour. And it turned out, of course, that the natural world was much more interesting. And there was a big consternation in 1996 when it was discovered to everybody's great surprise that actually moths and elephants do the same thing. And nobody was expecting this. So the big surprise was that moths and Asian elephants share a pheromone. And it's a small uh, chain uh, organic molecule. And there are about 160 species of moths which use the same pheromone as the female elephant. And this caused consternation because um, this ought to cause difficulties. Um, <laughs> The person who discovered all this was uh, an amazing biologist called Betts Rasmussen, who sadly died in 2006. She always worked on big animals. So she worked on elephants, uh, sharks, um, anything big. And she was used to taking huge quantities of material. So she worked with buckets of elephant urine, and she couldn't find the chemical. And so it was only when she teamed up with uh, an entomologist stroke chemist on the other side of America. She was in Oregon. She teamed up with someone in uh, New York State called Wendell Roloffs. And he was used to working on moths with tiny quantities of pheromone. And together they worked out the story uh, published in Nature. Well, what they illustrate are that pheromones are used by almost any animal you can think of. And if we don't know the pheromone, of one of your favourite animals, it's simply that it hasn't been studied in enough detail yet. It was a good reminder that unrelated species can use the same pheromone molecule, because in some ways there aren't enough molecules to go around. It was a very good signal that mammals can use small molecules as their pheromones. And pheromones can lead to physiological responses. And the main bioassay was the male elephant dipping down with his tongue, uh, tongue, with his trunk, much longer than his tongue, his trunk down to the ground to sniff uh, a sample. Um, but there was actually a very strong physiological response, and an elephant Mae West might easily have asked, um, was it your trunk, or were you pleased to see me? They got very excited. <laughs> now, this was the thing that I mentioned, why people were worried. So why don't moths and elephants get confused? Now, the reason that male elephants are not attracted to moth females, and that would be disastrous, <laughs> is that luckily, female moths release tiny quantities of the pheromone. And as I said, 
female elephants release gallons of pheromone. So he just doesn't notice the moths. But what about the male moths? And the female elephant probably wouldn't notice. But there is a reason why they're not attracted. And the reason is, each of the moth species has a number of different smells making up its pheromone, which is also the reason why they are not confused and why 160 species of moth can share the same pheromone because actually that's only one of five or six different compounds in a very precise ratio. And the males will only fly up to a female if she's got the blend just right. So the moth and elephant story tells us a lot and it was very important uh, as, a make, as a breakthrough. It was a good example, though, of something that had been gradually coming to the fore, which was this idea of blends, that pheromone messages are often from a combination of chemicals. And we've got lots now, uh, whether we're talking about bark beetles, uh, these moths that I mentioned, but also the fruit fly, um, which, of course, we know a great deal about from the genetics point of view. Um, these are the surface smells of fruit flies. And what we have down here are different species or different geographical variants of a species. And if we look at the different compounds that you find on the surface of the fruit fly, you basically find that there are different uh, mixtures, both in the female and the male, so they can tell each other apart, but also between the species as you go down, so they don't get confused. So when two fruit flies get close together, they can tell very easily as they touch each other whether they're, they're the right species. And of course, there are other things involved as well, because one of the things that Drosophila do is sing to each other. So when you're looking at fruit flies in your compost heap, they're actually doing some very complex behaviors. And it's not just insects that use these blends. Uh, mice uh, show aggression towards uh, another mouse that has these two compounds uh, showing on it. And it's the two compounds together that are active. And in fish, and we'll be coming on to goldfish in a minute, because you can smell underwater, of course, some of their sex pheromones require a blend. And that may be how, if there are lots of species in the river, they can distinguish their sex messages. So again, they don't get confused. <laughs> now, these proteins um, can actually be pheromones themselves. Uh, this is the splendid um, or magnificent tree frog. And one of the things that you may remember from biochemistry, if you did that, is that biochemists love giving the names to proteins. Um, and this one is called splendiferin. And uh, it's a very um, small peptide. And one of the interesting things is that a tiny quantity, 40 nanograms, put into an aquarium is enough to attract a female from about a meter away. And it seems to slide across the surface tension, across the water surface, faster than diffusion should let it. And one of the things they're looking at is it may actually almost be swimming with a scissors motion across the surface. And drug companies are interested in possibly using this as a way of getting things into the lungs and getting it to spread across the surface of the lung. So it's one of the ways that pharmacologists are using lots of natural products, in this case a pheromone, um, to find drug leads. Now, one of the things that is different between mammals and insects is that terrestrial mammals often take their small molecule and hide it in a large protein. 
And what they get from that is a slow release. So if you're a mouse marking your territory, you can put your urine marks down and you'll get the smell uh, releasing over a much longer period. Some of the individuality of your signal may also come not only from the MHC that you may have heard of, but also from these urinary proteins. And again, the elephant, the sex pheromone, uses uh, a protein with it to get the message across and to give it uh, a longer-lasting signal. Now, the other thing that's changed is the communication distance doesn't have to be very far. And these are some beautiful uh, Danaid butterflies. And in this case, the male is here, and he's attracted the female with a visual signal. She's been attracted by his colour and his movement. And when she comes up close, he's got some feathery uh, things that he pops out. And these have crystals of a small molecule, um, which are dropped directly as crystals onto the antenna of the female. There's a salamander that does something uh, in along the same lines, where he, because he's actually got a very um, large molecule in terms of air, it won't diffuse, he takes molecules from his chin and actually puts them directly on the nose of the female. And taking it a stage further, um, this is almost a vampire salamander, and he directly injects with some special canine teeth the pheromone directly into the blood supply of the female. So he misses out her olfactory signals uh, system altogether. And taking it a stage further, and this is where I'm going on to shaky ground as to whether this should count as a pheromone, in garter snakes and in these fruit flies, Drosophila, along with the sperm, the male is also injecting uh, in the semen a whole set of hormones which change her behaviour. And there's almost an arms race between the males and the females. The males don't want the female to mate again because another male's sperm will compete with his. The female may well want another male, a better male. And what happens in that arms race is he's injecting hormones with the sperm that shut down her behaviour so that she won't mate again. But females are evolving over time to be resistant to that hormone. And there's been some lovely studies on that. So that's a chemical message, but perhaps on the boundaries of pheromones. Now, what I want to do for a minute is to go back to how does smell work. And this is something that we've only really understood for the last 10 or 15 years, which is remarkable in itself that it's taken so long. So the thing about smell uh, is it's very good for communication. It works in the dark. It works around corners. Uh, smells can last a very long time, so you can mark your territory for a long period. And these uh, nocturnal creatures, um, these bush babies, uh, put urine on their hands, and then as they're walking along the branches, they leave a trail. But one of the things about smells is they're not instantaneous. Molecules have to go from the source of the smell, whether that's a cup of coffee or a dung heap, they have to go from there into your nose, and so if you're smelling the coffee, you are actually detecting molecules that have travelled from the coffee to you. Now, you'll remember that molecules, of course, have shapes, and in biological systems, and this is true for drugs, for hormones, that drugs are often mimicking hormones, of course, 
the three-dimensional shape, the 3D shape, is crucial for the recognition of those molecules. It's also true for odor receptor proteins, which we'll come up to. So if you look at the protein, sorry, the odor benzaldehyde, which smells of um, bitter almonds, um, you can show it in this stick form, or you can show it in this um, uh, shape uh, filling model. This has a shape that's going to fit into a receptor. <coughs> if you move the double bonds around within a molecule, that changes the shape quite dramatically. And in fact, if this was drawn as a shape-filling model, they would actually be very different shapes as those double bonds affect the shape dramatically. As it turns out, we are very good at detecting smells and distinguishing them. The thing we're not so good at is the very, very low-level detection that, of course, dogs are famously good at. But in terms of the range of smells that we can detect, we're actually just as good as dogs. And one of the things we can do, in the same way as insects and dogs can do, is we can detect chiral molecules. And you'll know that molecules often come in a left hand and a right hand, and you can't superimpose them on top of each other. It's a bit like trying to put your hand in the wrong glove. And there's one nice example. Um, carvone comes in one form that smells of spearmint, and that's what you get in spearmint chewing gum. But its mirror image, our noses and brains detect as caraway, which is a million miles away from spearmint. But they're the same molecule, but just the mirror image. But so far as being the same molecule, they're not, because their shapes are different. They're mirror shapes. OK, now, as you go across the animal kingdom, everything that smells basically uses a nose. And noses are all different. Like every family is, um, every sad family is different. Um, all noses are different. And so what we find is the male moth has uh, these amazing feathery antennae to pick up a uh, smell. This deep sea fish, the male has the largest nose and area devoted to, in its brain to smell of almost any other animal. Uh, we've got honeybees here surrounded by the queen, surrounded by her workers. Uh, snakes uh, detect the world by collecting molecules with their tongue and then bringing them back and popping them into the nose inside at the roof of the mouth. And then we've also got uh, a male deer here um, detecting with a special second nose, which we'll come on to later, the odours in the air from the female, a behaviour called flemen. So across the animal kingdom, oh, and um, underwater we've got uh, a lobster here, again detecting smell. So noses are very different, and that's what you'd expect in different environments, different media. But inside, basically, noses and brains all work roughly in the same way. So as we go across here, you have to have some <coughs> olfactory epithelium. You have to have some kind of skin that has the sensory cells that will detect the odours. And then it gets worked on inside the brain. Now, this is uh, in vertebrates. Um, but we'll see that it's very much the same in insects. If you were to look in the very roof of your nose, um, and it's right hidden up uh, way beyond uh, reach, luckily, um, it would look something like this. This is actually a scanning electromicrograph of a fish nose, 
but our noses look very much the same. And basically, these are the olfactory cells, which are specially adapted nerve cells that go directly into the brain. <coughs> if you were to magnify these olfactory cells, what you might see, although they wouldn't be coloured, are these individual sensory receptor molecules that are on the surface of these olfactory sensilla. And how smell works is each of these molecules has a different shape. And if you can imagine that the sensory cells with red receptors get, um, interact with the square ones, it's a lock and key, and that sends a message to the brain that we've got smell one. So you've got uh, smell one of these square molecules, they're reacting with those red uh, receptor proteins, and it's sending a message smell one. Smell two, the round one, is interacting with the blue receptors and sending a message to the brain, it's smell two. But then the really clever thing comes because, of course, molecules can have a mixture of a shape within the same molecule. So if you had a, a molecule that had a bit of square and a bit of round, then what would you get? Well, you've probably gone ahead of me. It would, of course, it would interact with both it would send a message, and then this is the clever bit. Inside the brain, it converts a message that's coming simultaneously from the blue and the red receptors into a message that this is now smell number three. And it's the cleverest thing that brains are doing, I think, and it's happening in everything from insects to people. All our brains work in the same way. And it was only in 2004 that the Nobel Prize was given to two people for the first time for elucidating how this whole system works, the sense of smell. And it was Richard Axel and Linda Buck, who were then at uh, Columbia University in New York. And what I think is that it's this characteristic of the odorant receptors for which they got the Nobel Prize and the second part of the Nobel Prize was for working out the organisation of the olfactory system that basically makes the pheromones almost inevitable as a signal. So, what happens in the brain is you've got the olfactory sensory neurons in the nose and they're sending the message. And the clever bit is that all the blue receptors uh, neurons are sending their message to a particular part of the brain, a glomerulus, where all the blue ones end up and all the red ones end up here. And then this is where all the integration to say, this is now smell three. But it's actually much better than that. Uh, this next bit just shows you that people who are working on vertebrates and people who are working on insects use different words to describe almost the same things. And that's actually been a real problem. Now, it's actually not just two kinds of receptors. In vertebrates, in rodents, in mice and rats, there are about a thousand of these. Uh, and in insects, about 100. Each of these receptor proteins is sensitive to different shapes and other characteristics of the odorant molecules, so different charge properties, uh, different positions of the double bond, and so forth. And the amazing thing is that the system is pre-adapted. Whatever smell is created in nature or by a chemist, the nose is ready 
to sniff it. If it's volatile, it's likely that you'll be able to smell it at a certain concentration, if the concentration is high enough. So any chemical is likely to stimulate some receptors. Now, one of the things that's weird is if you look at the proteins that do the transduction, that take a signal and convert it into a signal for the brain, if you look at uh, serotonin receptors very much in the news for depression, um, humans and Drosophila basically have very much the same molecule. We've not actually diverged that much in that. In terms of the light receptors uh, in our eyes that convert light energy into a signal to the brain, again, there's not much difference between humans and Drosophila. But if you look at our odor receptors in Drosophila, they're all over here, but fish and vertebrates are here, and then these are a whole load of others. So something very special has happened with the odor receptors that's completely different from what's happened with the light receptors. And it's that eyes haven't actually changed that much, although uh, if you read Richard Dawkins, you'll actually discover that they've evolved on many occasions, but they've always used the same uh, system for uh, converting light into a signal to the brain. And what we're talking about here is a clue as to how pheromones evolve. So if you're looking now underwater at goldfish and crabs, if there is an odour in the water that has a selective significance, so in this case, if there's an odour that's released by mature females, any male that is able to sniff it and detect it to any measure is going to have a head start at getting to the female and fertilising. So there's a very strong selection pressure on males, if any of them do by chance, any mutant males, have the ability to detect an odour coming from a female, they're going to do better, and the next generation will consist mostly of them. And what you find in goldfish and crabs is that the female pheromones are very similar to hormones. And what happens in these aquatic animals is if you've got a message happening inside the animal, it actually leaks across the gills. And so it does get into the water. So males started out with a few receptors for the hormones, and then those that actually were able to react uh, did much better. So in cartoon form, it might look something like this. Um, we start with, basically, things are being released by the female. She's not doing it on purpose. She's basically just leaky. The, um, the males don't have anything special to detect the female, but any of the mutants that actually are able to detect those low quantities do better. And so we go to the next stage, which could be called spying. So we have a change in the receiver, so males become more and more sensitive to the smell of females. And then finally, we have what you could call communication, where the females are actually since they need a, fit, a male to fertilise the eggs, they're actually pumping out a message to the males to attract them at the right moment. And so you then have a message. And in fact, in goldfish, uh, you also get um, the male starting to release pheromones towards the female. And so you get a chemical duet happening all underwater. So when you think of your goldfish in its bowl, 
um, it actually has a much more exciting life um, than you imagine. So it's a real chemical duet. The same thing is happening in lobsters. They're wafting uh, their pheromones in their urine, and then they do lots of mate guarding. So the top lobster will be guarding the female. And the same kind of thing happens with uh, kangaroos sniffing. And again, what kangaroos are doing is sniffing to find the female just before she ovulates. Now, there are, in many cases, um, a match between the pheromone that's used and the message. So ants um, have alarm pheromones that uh, signal danger, and you don't want to be alarmed all the time. So what you want is a fast-moving, volatile message that will disappear very quickly, and that's what you find. But if you're a hyena and you're marking your territories and you're on the Serengeti and you might not get back to this particular point for another three weeks, but you want the message to be there, then you'll find that you'll be using very high molecular weight messages that last a long time, that don't evaporate quickly. So the next question then is, what kinds of compounds do you find as pheromones? Well, there's an enormous variety. As you go across the animal kingdom, although some of the same compounds keep on coming up, um, there is nonetheless a huge variety, depending on whether you're in air or in water. And then, as I mentioned, some compounds are used by the same, by different animals. And part of it is that organisms use the same compounds because they use what's available. And since we all share a shared biochemistry, um, basically our biochemical machinery is used to producing the same things. And if we're talking about volatile molecules, um, there are only so many ways you can put together carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. Um, to produce a volatile molecule that's stable, that won't uh, immediately self-destruct. And as you go across the animal kingdom, um, you find in these goldfish, we've got the original function would appear to be hormones, and there are these here. In the lamprey, um, which is causing such problems in the Great Lakes in North America, it turns out that their sex pheromone comes from compounds that are related to bile, and one of the things that's being looked at at the moment is using synthetic sex pheromone to trap the lampreys because they cause enormous problems for the fisheries there. And then in ants, as you look at different ant species, you find that the alarm pheromone is often related to the defensive compounds that are released at a point of danger. And so that may be how they evolved. Now, ants leads me into the next thing, which is... Lots of societies are actually organised by smell. And uh, in this rather fanciful cartoon, we've got honeybees uh, building up uh, skyscrapers. <laughs> so they're using it for recruitment, to find food, build nests, and for defence, for recognition and who's a member. And this is something I won't be covering today, but there is a whole question about how the queen controls the hive and why the worker bees don't reproduce. But that's a whole other set of questions, and that may be partly pheromonal. So, the familiar story um, with ants uh, finding food, as they go back to the nest, if they haven't found food, they don't leave a trail, but if they found a rich uh, trail, they leave a pheromone. And there's a lovely bit in one of Richard Feynman's books. Um, he's watching the ants going across his apartment, 
and he tries rubbing out the trail, and um, he's able to show that, oh, yes, it is pheromones. So um, just another thing uh, that he does one day. So um, <laughs> do mammals use pheromones? And the answer is disappointingly no. Um, the naked mole rats, which are the closest things that mammals get to social insects, they ought perhaps to use pheromone smells if they were like ants, but in fact they don't seem to. And nor do they use pheromones for their uh, queen uh, worker control, sadly. Um, in terms of recruitment, uh, for building, uh, termites do this amazing thing. They're building things um, that are the equivalent uh, of building um, New York City, Manhattan, uh, if you scaled it all up, but they're, because they're five millimetres long and they're building these structures five metres high, but they're blind and there is no architect. And this is all done by local responses to pheromone concentration. It's an extraordinary story um, and well worth pursuing. And they build these amazing structures, as you know, with built-in air conditioning so that you get the hot air coming out of the top and they're also designing aligning uh, along magnetic fields, or rather, yes, along magnetic fields in some places, and catching it so that they don't get too much sun in other places. And that's all done by animals without a blueprint, just using smell, and the smell they've detected just a few millimetres away from each other. It's also used for defence, and one of the most spectacular of these is an arms race between the Japanese hornet which is huge, and the Japanese honeybee, which is a different species from the European uh, honeybee. And over evolutionary time, the Japanese honeybees have evolved a response to the Japanese hornet. The Japanese hornet, if it's allowed, will mark the hive and then with a pheromone and then bring over its sisters and then together the hornets will basically snickety-snack, chop the honeybees in half, um, and basically they can destroy a hive in just an hour or two. And this is one of the problems for um, beekeepers in Japan, if they're using the European honeybee, because the European honeybee has no defence, and it does just get cut up into pieces, and the whole hive disappears, and those bees are taken back to the wasp nest to feed the wasp young. But what the Japanese honeybees do is when they detect the pheromone mark of the hornet, they lure the hornet inside and then jump on it <laughs> in large numbers. And all that is signalled by pheromones. And what the honeybees do is buzz. And as they buzz, their wing muscles generate heat. And then this is a heat camera view of this cloud of bees who brought the hornet down, they're actually now on the ground, and the temperature is getting up to about 90 degrees or so. Um, no, well, 48 degrees um, centigrade. Um, and basically, it boils the hornet. And luckily, for this to work, the honeybees have a higher lethal temperature than the hornet. And basically, they just fry it to death. If they can get there before the hornet marks the uh, hive, then, in fact, no other hornets will come, of course. So what about societies organised by smell in terms of recognition? So how do they know who's a member, who's an alum? Well, it all involves learning. And that's true whether we're talking about badgers, uh, which, of course, are studied uh, by David MacDonald uh, just out at White and Woods, 
or if we're talking about ants touching each other with their antennae. Animals, whether we're talking about badgers or dogs, get a lot of information when they meet. So if you can imagine a dog meeting with its eyes closed, because of course if it looked it, it could tell, but if it had its eyes closed, by smell it could detect the species, whether it was male or female, whether it was a puppy or an adult, uh, whether it was in estrus, whether it was in heat. Incidentally, we still don't know what that pheromone is. And dogs can also recognise uh, individuals, of course. Ants, when they meet, are doing very much the same thing. They can detect species, age, sex, a varying stage, whether they're producing <coughs> eggs or not, which, of course, most ants are not, only the queen is, uh, whether it's a worker or a soldier or a queen. And the equivalent for ants is colony odour. Uh, which colony are you from? And this is all uh, done by learning. And this is just one of the ways uh, that learning works. Um, you meet uh, mouse B, and the next time you meet uh, mouse B, you remember its smell. And in fact, humans are very good at this. Um, we don't normally use it because we can use voice um, or vision, but Helen Keller um, wrote at great length about her own abilities uh, since, of course, she could neither see uh, nor hear um, at smelling and recognising people. And any of us, if, we're wearing a, if we are sniffing the T-shirt that has been worn by our partner, um, much better than chance we can recognise the T-shirt as having been worn by a, the partner or as opposed to somebody else. Um, so this is one of the ways that uh, smell is recognised. And, and this is the special individual odour of an individual animal. There is a danger, though, in relying on smell. And if you have ants who use smell as the passport for entering the nest, you don't have to look like an ant to invade, so long as you smell right. And this is an ant, sorry, this is a beetle uh, in the centre here, which uh, smells like the ant hosts. And so the ants actually feed it, um, and it lives parasitically uh, within the ant's nest. And there was a lovely quote um, in one book where somebody's describing how with all these visitors and parasites in the ant's nest, it's as if um, in our own homes we had alligators and every morning we'd go down and think we've got one child less, but we'd still feed the alligator because it smelt right. <laughs> so what about territories? Um, animals mark all sorts of things. Um, this is an antelope uh, marking its territory. Uh, these are some Mara, uh, marking with male urine, the female. Uh, lizards do it, cats do it, uh, and so do lots of insects. Uh, social insects do it too, and these are weaver ants fighting over territories uh, which they've previously marked. And um, usually lampposts uh, don't <laughs> squirt back, uh, but this time... <laughs> So it probably speaks for every lamppost. <laughs> so one thing I haven't covered is how animals find their way when they're looking for smells. And it turns out it's incredibly difficult. Um, if I was to blow uh, mint odour, and I was actually tempted to do that, but I thought I'd keep it simple, um, what we'd find is if I put up a fan here, it would take a few minutes for the smell to reach you over there and it would take even longer for people on the side to detect the smell. And of course the reason 
is that smell is carried in currents that are really complicated. They're, one way of imagining it is it's a bit like looking at the smoke coming from a chimney. And you can see these sort of wisps uh, blowing downwind. And this is a visualisation of uh, odour plumes in water. And you can see that they are very complex. They're swirling, and there are lots of different concentrations in them. And it's a very hard thing to track. Um, but one of the remarkable things is that animals, as they track odours, seem to do very much the same sort of thing. So whether we're talking about albatross uh, detecting the odour of food, or fish doing the same thing, uh, fish homing to their home stream, or female moths finding a plant to lay their eggs on, or male moths finding a female, they all have this zigzag response. Now, all these animals are doing it in the most challenging environment, which is mid-water or mid-air. But you get the same kind of zigzag for animals that are on the ground. And there's this lovely um, slide here, which if I bring the lighting down a bit, what we have is a pheasant here, and it left the track in the yellow. And what we've got here is a dog with light-emitting LEDs on its collar. And what you can see from the point where the dog was released is it basically zigzags as it loses the trail. When it's lost the trail, it turns back. And then finally, sadly, it's going to find the, the pheasant. <coughs> now, one of the questions that's been around for a long time is, could humans do that? And some researchers in California at Berkeley had the brilliant idea of asking just that question. And so they got um, people uh, to sniff a trail. And they took the precaution of getting them to wear gloves or mittens so they couldn't detect the trail in any way by touch. They put earmuffs, uh, goggles, um, and then they set the people free to search across this lawn in the university for chocolate, which, <laughs> which I would certainly find. Um, they put chocolate oil, uh, chocolate odour, in, in an oil trail that ran across the lawn, and they set the person walking, and they were told they should turn left when they hit the trail. And this is what they found. And this was only in uh, 2007, so it's only last year. <laughs> so this is the person um, uh, sniffing away. And this is a GPS um, so that they could um, work out where the uh, person was going. This was the chocolate trail in yellow. And in fact, they're pretty good. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure if the people were rewarded with a piece of chocolate. <laughs> but they actually got a lot better as time went on. So twice a day, these uh, human volunteers <laughs> went out onto the lawn, <laughs> um, and they were able to test other things. And it showed that um, it was actually really useful having both nostrils. So our brains actually compare both sides. And that's been something we've been wondering about. It, it isn't true in moths. Um, they don't have to rely on that. So what I want to end with in the last uh, 10 minutes or so is what about humans? Um, because that's the ever-interesting question. There's a lovely book um, by David Stoddart. Um, it was the scented ape, um, I guess in homage to uh, the naked ape, Desmond Morris. Um, but sadly, he didn't have a very good cover. It was grey. Um, 
and it was too academic. There were too many references, so it never took off in the way that um, Desmond Morris's book did. But he makes the case that humans almost certainly do have pheromones. Um, if you uh, go across the primates, you find that primates, when they meet, um, do all sorts of sniffing. And so if we're like other primates, um, I think wasn't there an Eminem um, song about um, the Discovery Channel? We're only mammals. Um, we ought to do things by smell. And in fact, one person said that if we were like mammals, other mammals, we wouldn't go to zoos to look at animals, we'd go to zoos to sniff them, um, if we were like dogs. So, on the evidence of what we are, we ought to sniff. This was the one I showed you, um, sex attractant pheromones to make us irresistible. Sadly, um, all the evidence so far is that these don't exist. Um, but they could give you confidence. So, one of the things, though, is that lots of the promoters um, of these five million sites on the web um, suggest that we have a second nose and um, that our noses, our, our heads, are a bit like mice with this second nose, the vermironasal organ. And certainly uh, in rodents, they have both the main olfactory area in blue and this second little nose here and they go to different parts of the brain. <coughs> and in snakes, uh, too, we have the main olfactory area and then this uh, little VNO. And so one of the intriguing things is that if you <coughs> find somebody you know, uh, look at their nose, in about 20% of people, it varies a little bit, um, you may see a little dimple um, on the septum uh, a centimetre or so in. And that was thought to be the vermironasal organ for humans. But, sadly, um, there is actually very little evidence. Um, it looks as though we only have it in the early embryo, and that it disappears by the time we're born. And there's been a lot of molecular evidence now that suggests that we don't have any of those olfactory receptor proteins that we would need to detect something in the uh, vermironasal organ. And there is even an intriguing suggestion that we may have lost our VNO since we gained colour vision and uh, red bottoms and all sorts of other things uh, as uh, primates became much more significant. And it was actually probably not so much that as looking at fruit and getting ripe fruit. And one of the big clues is that great apes don't have, the gorillas and so forth, don't have a VNO. The four is very limited. There's a little bit of um, uh, fMRI, the magnetic resonance imaging, on the brains of people sniffing things that might suggest perhaps we do have a VNO. But I think the most interesting idea is that it may be all detected by our main olfactory area, our main nose. And there are actually lots of examples of animals that are able to do that. Because not all sex pheromones have to be detected by a VNO. Sheep and pigs have sex pheromones, but they use their regular nose. We then get, what's the circumstantial evidence that uh, David Stoddart was appealing to in saying that we must have pheromones? Well, it all comes really from sexual selection. And this takes us back to Darwin uh, as we come back to a special year with the origin of species next year. So really, I ought to be talking about this next year, not this year. Well, sexual selection. It's all about mate choice, and it's all about why males usually are so smelly. <laughs> uh, and we are. We are arguably <coughs> smellier than females. 
And the reason we're smelly um, is because females like it. <laughs> um, or so I'm told. So it basically all comes back to the peacock. And the peacock male is a fantastic example, as you know, of sexual selection. This is not a good idea in terms of being eaten by a fox. You'll be eaten because you can't get away easily with this enormously long trail. But if you're, if you're attractive to females and leave lots of offspring, then by runaway selection, the best males, those thought to be best by females, will have the longest tails until they get so long that they do get eaten uh, more than they manage to reproduce, in which case there is an upper limit to how big the tails can get. And this was all, I guess, um, synthesized by Darwin, and he described it this way when talking about mammals. He's describing the elaborate odour glands, so these are the stinky parts of mammals, is intelligible through sexual selection. If the most odiferous, the smelliest males are the most successful in winning the females and in leaving offspring to inherit their gradually perfected glands and odours. And then he goes on to describe pythons in the zoo um, smelling wonderfully uh, in the breeding season and lots of other examples and goats being um, incredibly um, luxuriously smelly. Um, and one person was driven to suggest that a mouse um, in attracting a female is actually wafting this um, wonderful uh, odour plume that's like a, a peacock tail. So what are the characteristics that Darwin said would be indicative of something that was sexually selected? Well, the first is that the signal will be biggest in only one of the sexes. So in the case of peacocks, it's the male peacock that has that amazing uh, uh, train, amazing tail. It will be developed only in the adults, often only in the breeding season, again true in goats, um, and of their smell, and true of peacocks. And it would be, have something to do with mating, that you could, it didn't seem to have any other function. And he concluded that chemical signals and the scent glands uh, that are producing these chemical signals often show these characteristics. So what about humans? Well, um, armpits, uh, male armpits smell more than female armpits. We just are smellier. It's developed only in adults, and one of the big changes in puberty, of course, is all the hair that develops in your armpits, and also the glands that change, so you now start to secrete the things that will be smelly. And this is the big question. Um, is it used primarily or exclusively in mating? And this is the real problem, because working on humans is really hard. And there is a wonderful book called Aroma, um, which is a social history of smell, um, and uh, that basically says across uh, human societies, smell is often important, um, but it's very hard to study. So, sadly, where we are is that despite all this circumstantial evidence of smelly armpits and only in adults, there is no evidence for attraction. But there may be one bit of evidence for pheromones in humans, and that's all about reproductive cycles. Basically, it seems that women living together in close contact, and this is shown, I guess, in women's colleges um, and in uh, other places, in nunneries, that if you're living together, and may even be true in families, you'll start to synchronise your menstrual cycles. It turns out the statistics are very hard, 
because you have a, a circular statistics as time rolls on. But that seems to be shown. And in 1998, uh, McClintock, again, by this time she was a graduate student with the first paper. Her second paper, she was then dean of the medical school in Chicago. She was able to show that odorless sweat does have a physiological effect on other women, and it changes their cycles and leads them towards synchronizing. And what this suggests is that there is a priming pheromone that affects not the women's behavior, but their hormonal cycles. And one of the things that gave uh, an indication that it might be a possible contraceptive, another way of influencing hormonal cycles, was all the work done on mice, where we do know that some of these molecules actually do either uh, do estrus induction uh, or the synchronization of their cycles or accelerate uh, puberty. We know that that's all driven by smell. So the question then is, since we do know that the main olfactory system can deal with pheromones, we don't need to have a VNO in the way that mice do. Perhaps there could be something there. And I'm sure that there are lots of teams working on that at the moment, but it's the kind of thing that will be patentable, and so I'm afraid we won't hear about it until it's all uh, finished, I'm afraid. So very, very lastly, what about um, other uses? Well, forensic uses, um, of course, um, dogs are used for tracking, and there's some lovely work um, being done in Holland about looking at how reliable dogs are as witnesses in courts, because, of course, you can't cross-examine them, and you've only got one dog's word for it, um, that this was um, the smell he or she smelt. And so th that's actually quite an interesting area philosophically. There's all the question about odours as treatment and mood changes. The evidence is not actually that good, um, but there may be some things, for example, with peppermint uh, and uh, verbane, or verven. Um, there are all sorts of medical uses of smells. Um, one is um, this rather intriguing thing, which is we don't know why, but one of the very early signs of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is a slight loss in the sensitivity of smell. And there is a scratch and sniff test um, developed in the University of Pennsylvania. And according to uh, how many of the odors you can smell, um, it will give you an indication of whether or not you're losing your smell. There are, however, lots of problems because you can lose your sense of smell for all sorts of other reasons, including a cold. So um, one of the problems that we want to avoid um, is self-diagnosis, where you rush out, discover you can't smell anything, um, and then think that you have Alzheimer's because it may not be that at all. There are also things about what you smell of. Um, and this was something that uh, doctors over many years used. Gangrene, I guess, would be an extreme case. But lots of diseases have characteristic smells, um, which can be used for diagnosis. So whether it's a bacterial infection, and the bacteria produce a particular chemical themselves that gives you a particular smell. And there's also some nice work done uh, not by Oxford scientists, but done very close to here, uh, on the way to, um, to London. Um, dogs can be trained to spot the smell that's given off in urine of people, or oh, well, men, uh, with early prostate cancer. Now, that hasn't actually been taken on for diagnosis, but it's one of those areas that I think will show promise in the future. 
And almost every year, there is another paper saying we've got an electronic nose for diagnosis. But none of them are actually that sensitive yet. Dogs are, are much better. Okay, so humans, um, we probably are scented apes. We do use smell for individual recognition. It's probably used for make choice, and those are all the t-shirt things that I can mention later. Um, it's probably involved in menstrual strength synchrony. It has some important practical uses. And uh, the vermiral nasal uh, organ uh, is a bit doubtful. And what I would argue is that to smell is human. <laughs> so the conclusion is that pheromones are the commonest communication in species all across the animal kingdom. Um, it pre-adapts for their evolution as signals. There's this amazing convergence in insects and vertebrates. And smell is important, but not yet identified. Um, on the website, which is on your handout, um, you can download the first chapter for free uh, on the website. It's in paperback, and I shall be signing later. But more importantly, um, we've got time for some questions now, and I'm very happy to talk informally. So we've got some roving mics, um, and I'll wait around people. Thank you very much. Thank you.